Hey guys, it's producer Daniel from The Dive Table. Just a heads up regarding the recording this week. I did my best to minimize the interference. However, Riverside is not being very cooperative. Again, Riverside. Our special guest this week is Chuck No of the famed WKPP and Good Enough Springs Exploration Project, among many other accomplishments. Because he was kind enough to share some unique stories with us, I decided not to split this episode into two. The audio is fine in the beginning. It gets a little challenging towards the middle, but then it smooths out for the remainder of the episode. Bear with us, as this is definitely an episode you'll not want to miss. Welcome to The Dive Table. I'm Jay Gardner, and with me, as always, is Malaysian expat resident uh, of a last, what, couple weeks or something like that, Mr. Nick Hogle. Nick, how are you doing today? I am doing good. Uh, it's actually going to be one month tomorrow for me since I've arrived here. So uh, it's making the transition. I still wow, have a month already. Everything. I know it goes by pretty soon. It'll I be didn't a year. expect that. It feels like you left like last week. So because uh, I'm still I'm still in here. I'm still in here, and that's all. That you're I still have. in my heart. Yeah, <laughs> no, of course. Yeah, actually, you're supposed to leave like seven months ago. But I you know. know. <laughs> This is the ongoing joke. Well, good. And uh, producer Daniel is here as well. So that means we are recording another episode of the show. And today we're really, really, really honored and excited to welcome uh, what I think is a scuba diving legend to the show, Mr. Chuck No. Chuck, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Awesome. It's bright and early in Texas. Uh, and late in Malaysia. So uh, we're all either knocking off the sleep from the eyes or fighting the the sleep from coming. But I want to talk a little bit here up front just to introduce Chuck, if you don't know who he is, uh, to give you some background on him uh, right here up front. So Chuck has been diving since 1980. So he's he's has some dives under his belt. uh, And he earned his full cave certification in 96 so he's been in caves for a long time and he became an advanced trimix instructor in 1997 back in the days when i think that was still considered some some form of voodoo gas uh, right around there maybe coming out of that at that point um, he served as the lead dive master on the offshore flower gardens here in texas the dive boats throughout the 90s and founded the area's first technical dive facility which was called gulf tex scuba he then did some cave exploration with the famed WKPP or Woodville Karst Plane Project in Florida and the Yucatan before he became a founding member and the director of the Good Enough Springs Exploration Project. As an interesting note there, if that sounds familiar to you as a listener of our podcast, Mike Galt is a diver on that team uh, from Good Enough Springs and talked about Good Enough Springs, that project specifically. So uh, Chuck was the founding member and director of that project. Other diving affiliations include the Marine Spill Response Corporation, the Geophysical and Environmental Research Group, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, Texas Parks and Wildlife, Artificial Reefs Division, um, and Texas A&M University, the Gulf Reef Environmental Action Team, the Wimberley Valley Watershed Association, and the Nature Conservation Conservancy. Sorry, the Nature Conservancy. So Chuck's has a ton of experience and is involved in a lot of things. 
And he's also served as director of the Gulf Brine Seep Expedition in 2001 and was pre- previously co-director of the Jacob's Well Exploration Project. So all you divers that have been in Jacob's Well, I'll talk about Jacob's Well. Uh, here's the guy, right? <laughs> and he's a member of the National Association of Cave Divers, the National – I'm going to screw this one up – Speleological Society, uh, Cave Diving <laughs> Section – You'll correct me on that one. Uh, Chuck is also the regional coordinator for the International Underwater Cave and Rescue, Cave Rescue and Recovery Team. His current residence is right here in Perlin, Texas. So, Chuck, welcome to the show. Quite a resume, but we wanted to make sure that we gave people uh, all the experience that you've had and what you bring to the table when you speak about diving is immense. And so we're really honored to have you on the show and excited to, to have a conversation. So, uh, Nick, you ready to, uh, to jump right into this one? Let's, let's get it started. So, uh, you know, I'll keep it, keep it simple, but, uh, what, and you know, what brought you into diving and tell us about that, you know, the, the first experiences, your first breaths underwater, you know, but like, you know, why did you get into diving? What, you know, drove you to it? And then what was it like when you took those first breaths underwater? Okay. Well, just like everyone sitting at this table, I'm sure I grew up in the Southern United States in a public swimming pool, uh, you know, bought a mask and fins as early as I possibly could so that I could go down and touch the drain in the deep end, you know, just trying to be adventurous and, uh, you know, spent all that time swimming around the pool. One of the local residents there uh, was a scuba diver. He was the only scuba diver I knew in the entire town. And uh, at one point decided he was going to become an instructor and, and wanted to teach people in the local pool. Of course, my parents threw a fit and said, there's no way I could do that. <laughs> I was too young. It was too dangerous. And uh, so it was 18 years of age, at least, before I uh, – got to enjoy the benefits of scuba diving just because I was too busy falling off of motorcycles and things like that to do anything (laughs) dangerous like scuba diving. So so once I was college age, uh, a buddy of mine was another person who had become a scuba diver. I was home for the summer uh, from school and uh, he said, you want to go diving? I'm like, well, sure. You know, how do I do it? And he said, well, here's a tank and here's a regulator. And luckily it wasn't a double hose. They had the single hose, high fancy regulators by then. And uh, he said, let's go to the lake. We went there and he strapped all this stuff on me. He picked up a spear gun. He said, follow me. And so we jumped in the water in a lake in Oklahoma, actually called Lake Murray, beautiful lake, pretty clear, had about, you know, 30, 40 foot of visibility. He said, it's only 60 feet deep. Just follow me. And, Jumped in, and I followed him around for about a half an hour until I started breathing a little heavy. And that's when he said to pull that rod on the back of the tank. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that gave me a little extra burst of air. And he said, okay, well, we better go up now. So I just followed this this clown around with a uh, spear gun at 60 feet of water. And I'd never had a scuba lesson in my life at the time. I'm a little bit embarrassed about that. Uh, but it was such an incredible experience that I was hooked and uh, – Never, never gave gave it up after that moment. That's 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 a great story. Did you catch anything with the? I spear gun? think he shot a couple of catfish or something, and <laughs> I'm not sure if that was even legal or not. But uh, 
you know, we were young and he didn't care at the time. And that was that was 1980. So uh, at that point, I decided that I either had to learn how to scam the dive stores into letting me rent gear or take lessons. And so I opted for the first at that point in time. (laughs) (laughs) And then what was the journey from there? So so amazing <laughs> follow me dive <laughs> you know, no idea what's going on and then the decision to take training and obviously you pursued that to a, a very high degree so talk a little bit about your your training experience maybe from that first one to what kept you going I mean obviously um, you know you can go as far as you want but I'm curious from my perspective where like your training journey really started and how it evolved from there Sure, absolutely. I uh, uh, after that, you know, I did a few, you know, dives that I probably shouldn't have done. wasn't trained at that point in time, and uh, and ended up graduating school, uh, moved back to Austin, started a band, and, and met my lovely wife at that time. Lived there for a few years, and it was actually 1985 before I decided I wasn't going to be a rock star and needed to to you know make a living. So. I moved up and took over as a property manager, uh, doing doing maintenance work as a property maintenance manager. And one of the cool things about that job is you end up with houses full of stuff that people abandon because they don't want to clean it up. And one of the things I found in, in my journey there was a, a scuba tank. And so that tank prompted me to get back into scuba diving because I knew how much I loved it. And uh, I was married by that time. And so I took the tank and went to a dive store and said, I've got this tank. I want to learn how to dive. And uh, this was in Edmond, Oklahoma. And they were like, you know, well, that tank's probably worthless. It was an old coated steel 72. And uh, they said, but we can rent you all this stuff and you can start diving with us. And so that's where I started my open water. And up there, we... We had a pool we trained in. We ended up going to lakes for open water. I had never, uh, you know, seen the ocean other than, you know, not from underwater anyway, up until that point. But they really got me interested in it and pushed me, didn't even push me. I mean, you know, from there you go to your advanced open water. And then, you know, you start talking about rescue diver and all of this. And the shop was kind of small and they, they didn't have a reputation as being all that adventurous. And so I ended up moving to another larger store who, you know, they were all about spearfishing and, you know, adventure and all of this stuff. Uh, one of the guys that talked there ended up being a, a really fairly high to do uh, administrator within one of the large diving train, training organizations, a guy by the name of Craig Jenny. Uh, somebody might have heard his name before. Anyway, they were running these spear fishing rodeos, and so of course they sold me a, a spear gun, and uh, we ended up in a lake in Oklahoma called Lake Ten Killer, and they had this this rodeo where you would not shoot the game fish, but they would go out for like carp and things like that. And it's just whoever could get the most carp, and so uh, that led to Dive Master, and. Uh, Eventually, real estate crashed. I moved back to Texas where I belonged, got near the Gulf Coast, and uh, went looking around for a dive shop in Texas because uh, you know how it is. You get to, to be a dive master, and the next thing you know, you're, you're looking for that dive store that you can hang out with and, and do things with. 
And so I found a little place down here on I-10 in Houston called Texas Scuba. Um, and their claim to fame was they had an old water tank. It was about 25 foot tall and probably 15 or 20 feet in diameter. It had a big glass porthole in the side. So they would do their training in there for open water. And all their, all their students, parents, or significant others could stand outside the tank and look through this large porthole and see all the underwater training going on through this porthole. And it was a really cool dive store. Uh, everybody there was, you know, a cool guy. And, and uh, we just had a great time. And so that kind of became my dive store at that point in time. Awesome. So when, when did you know you wanted to move towards instructor? I mean, I know it's, it's, a, it's a natural progression coming out of Dive Master. You know, I know the, some of the agencies, they kind of push it. Some people are like, oh, hold off. Some people are wanting to just go right into it. Or did you, did you take a step back? Like what led you into the, the cave and the technical, you know, did, is it something you just natural progression or were you an instructor first or how, how did that all come about? Sure, that's a, a good question and an obvious lead-in. Uh, working at that scuba store, um, you know, I assisted as a dive master, and they got involved with the offshore flower gardens trips with the uh, Wren boats, the fleeing, eventually the spree, the 100-foot boats. And so 1990, I think, probably was my first offshore trip as a dive master, and we went as, as just a group dive master for our own clientele. And that all worked out really well. So the store owner said, well, look, you know, we were doing trips to Cozumel, but I didn't get to go on those because they wanted their instructors to be there so they could help finish people's training. He said, well, if you just knock out your instructor stuff, he said, I'll make you a, a, a dive master, an instructor, and you can start going to Cozumel for free. Uh, you know, whenever you want, whenever you're available. So I said, well, that sounds like a great deal. <laughs> so they, they were a patty store. And so I took a patty instructor course uh, with one of the, the big patty instructor guys and did all my checkouts and stuff up in Dallas. And that's when I first got introduced to rebreathers. I was actually an instructor training course when they put rebreathers on us uh, for one of the companies out of Dallas, Cochrane who was starting to, to sell a rebreather at that time. That was my introduction to that. And uh, so got my instructor and then started doing those types of trips where we'd take people to Cozumel and, and, uh, and all of that. But I continued to have just great interest in the offshore diving. I fell in love with diving off these boats. And so I guess it was really late 1990 when I was invited out on the boat as a as a dive master for the large boat, not as a trip uh, dive master for customers, but to go out with them on a trip in which the uh, star reefs were being dropped in the Gulf of Mexico. The Texas Parks and Wildlife put down these old oil rigs that they would cut off and they put them on a barge and they drag them to a location and drop them in deep water for fishermen and for divers who had a little extended range and at that time, I think we went out to a place, it was probably 60, 75 miles offshore, and uh, they dropped all these rigs, and we were going to go down for the first time, this group of probably 20 people, including Parks and Wildlife and, and all that, and uh, see what 
this looked like, see how many fish we had attracted. I mean, that was the, the main goal of it. And so I had, at that point in time, I had a Scuba Pro Jacket BC that I had modified and had mounted two aluminum 63 tanks to it. And so they said, okay, you're going to be the guy who goes down and finds this, this uh, star reef. And we're pretty sure it's right there. And they picked it up on the sonar. And so everybody stood there and watched as this, this dumb kid from Texas jumped off the bow of the boat with a rope. They said, well, just let the rope out. And when you get down there, tie onto it. And so I just sunk into the abyss below me. It's 200 feet of water. And I'd never made a dive below 130 feet in my life that point in time but the, they said but the, the top of the thing is like it's probably 140 because it's 60 feet <laughs> tall laying on its side i said great so i just you know made this free fall in the murky green water 75 miles offshore and uh, got down there and hear this murk out of the murk appeared this structure and uh, i was scared i won't say the word but i was quite scared <laughs> And yeah. solo, of course, and uh, just went down and tied this rope on there with a, a bowline knot because I knew what a bowline was <laughs> and made my way safely back to the surface. <laughs> uh, once I got back to the surface, I you know, received a round of applause for successfully putting an upline off this star reef for the first time ever. And that was the birth of my technical diving career right there. So. Wow. Uh, I think the applause was for survival. Oh. <laughs> I think probably on the boat they were saying, I don't know. We'll see if he comes back. <laughs> so I'm actually kind of, is that, is that still a common practice? Do they still do stuff like that where they'll drop just stuff? Do they do that? Still? The, I don't as far know. As the structures? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a, there was a big push, a big project all throughout the 90s and even in the 2000s, I believe, for this artificial reefs program. And uh, they put some of the stuff down near uh, Port Aransas. But then they started acquiring these, these what they called Liberty ships, these 100-foot World War I-era boats that were used for transport and all that. And they sunk quite a number of those offshore as well. Uh, there's some really nice wreck diving from this artificial reefs program that takes place down off of Mustang Island and, and on down near the, uh, uh, the Corpus, not the Corpus Christi area, but all the way down by, uh, what am I trying to say? South Padre Island. I know the Clippers so over there. Off, yeah. Even offshore of Freeport, there's one Liberty ship. I think it's called the BF Shaw. It's a hundred foot boat and they cut the, the sides out with big enough portholes that you can actually swim through them and there's not an entangled hazard or, or anything like that. And the one out of Freeport's actually only nine miles offshore. Uh, if you catch it on a good day, you can actually see the whole wreck. It's covered in fish. It's a, a great spot oh, to wow. go dive if you're a spear fisherman or something like that. But uh, these are dotted up and down the Gulf Coast from uh, from that period of time wow well, hopefully they're not just you know throwing some kid out there with a double tank set up you know 200 feet down <laughs> a little bit more uh thought going into that but that is i actually did not know that about the golf there i, I knew that there was the texas clipper but i didn't know that there was uh about that program so that's actually really cool to hear it's uh it's worth a trip back to texas for <laughs> Yeah, it's a it, it was a great program. Uh, you know, off of Freeport, there's a 
they put the Liberty ships. There's actually two of them uh, that are further out, about 30 miles. There was a, a big shipwreck back out in the, off of Freeport years ago. It was a tanker that, that caught fire and exploded and sank. Uh, and so that went down and they found that that was a good uh, habitat for fish. So they dropped two more of these Liberty ships near it. And then it was probably close to the year 2000 uh, that Houston Lighting and Power was trying to figure out a way to get rid of all their their what they call fly ash. It's a byproduct of generation processes where uh, they burn I guess it was coal. Yeah, it's coal fly ash. So they formed these big, huge blocks out of this fly ash and took them out on a, a barge and dropped them next to these ships out in the Gulf. And that was actually a five-day project. Uh, most of it's done with winches and cranes and all this kind of stuff. But they built a huge, I won't say huge, but a, quite a large pyramid underwater uh, that was to attract fish and supplement that diving site as a recreational dive destination for uh, Texas Gulf water divers. And uh, that was a really interesting trip because we got to spend five days solid, just moored up at this place. So we searched every Liberty ship, the, the wreck that's out there already that was exploded from this, you know, this huge fire that they had. And uh, I spent, I don't know how many, broken off anchors we recovered from that i was at the scuba flea market for years selling anchors to people <laughs> that we had pulled up with lift bags and drug back aboard the boat uh, so that was a great experience as well so let's talk about those double 63s for a minute <laughs> so uh so it sounds like you know the in that era tech diving was was really being birthed uh, you know relatively new and there were I've heard lots of stories from from people about, you know, a hack together rig and kit based on the needs of the dive or the need of the diver, what, what types of things you wanted to do. So if we could kind of diverge uh, and indulge me for a minute about kind of the technical side of of going from, you know, double 63s and a hack together jacket vest to kind of your evolution of of need from a equipment and uh equipment of evolution process would be really interesting to me to to go down that rabbit hole for just a minute sure well, that's a bit embarrassing but i will uh <clears throat> i'll be honest with you be candid <laughs> oh, don't mean to embarrass don't mean to embarrass but yeah i'm curious <laughs> no no it's 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 not really an embarrassment but but you'll get a chuckle out of it uh, since i was diving this U.S. diver's equipment and stuff, even before I had the, the 63 doubles set up, I had purchased one of these triple 30 uh, aluminum cylinder rigs that U.S. divers made. It was kind of like the Jacques Cousteau rig, but uh, you could either buy it with, a, with or without an ABS plastic housing over it. But it was basically three <laughs> aluminum 30s on a manifold side by side. And they didn't worry about redundancy. It only had one outlet for a regulator, but it was three thirties and you looked really cool wearing it. So I bought one of those, uh, when I was, you know, like I say, fairly young and was diving that it even started taking on the offshore trips. But, uh, when I did that, that first dive with the, uh, with the group setting the star reefs, um, 
I, for the very first time, I saw what really was the birth of technical diving for me. And that was one of the scientists out of Corpus Christi, Quentin Dawkins, had two large stand-up oxygen cylinders from a welding supply place strapped to the back of our 100-foot vessel and had a drop line, actually had a, two drop lines, I believe, off the side of the boat down to 30 feet where he had, you know, second stage regulators hooked up to 100% oxygen. And I was shocked. I'd never seen oxygen used at a dive site before, didn't know what they were doing. So I picked his brain and he was like, oh yeah, well this, we've discovered that this helps you get rid of the nitrogen from your body. So we use oxygen decompression. And even though they weren't using decompression techniques and weren't diving uh, decompression profiles, they had this oxygen in the water. So uh, that was really where I my eyes opened up and I started reading and learning all about that kind of thing. So I went home and decided that I needed oxygen too for some of the deeper stuff we were doing at the flower gardens and uh, took my triple 30 tanks and developed a bracket that mounted onto the bottom of them. Uh, had like these band clamps that went around the two outside cylinders. So we mounted a uh, 14 cubic foot cylinder traversely underneath it. So you had three upright cylinders and then a cylinder laying underneath it. And we'd put 100% oxygen in that and have a second regulator. And so that was our decompression off-gassing cylinder uh, that I carried around. And I started using this on even the recreational trips offshore and, you know, you'd have all these, we'd have 30 divers on board who were all recreational divers chasing fish around at 80 foot at the flower gardens. And I was a boat dive master at that point in time, just kind of getting people in the water now. But after everybody came out, then the dive masters got to dive. And so uh, I kind of got this reputation as this strange guy who had this strange equipment and he had <laughs> oxygen in the cylinder strapped to the bottom of him. And so uh, had no redundancy. We weren't overhead environment and we were not really doing much decompression diving initially out there, but it was great because I could, it was kind of the precursor to diving nitrox as we could go offshore, dive around, you know, max out our computers on no decompression diving, and then come back up to 30 foot, turn on the oxygen and, and breathe that on the, uh, on the drop line to, before we came back up on the boat. And it allowed us to do some pretty aggressive dives without getting whacked, uh, with this <laughs> odd looking configuration that we had. So, you know, it went from there to, you know, diving true manifolds with dual outlets and all of that and using a pony bottle appropriately tied onto you some way for oxygen. But that's kind of how it got started. And that just continued to evolve in better and better gear. And, you know, even spearfishing, uh, I became a, a firm believer in redundant regulators for some of the profiles and, would dive a, a 108 or a steel 104 offshore with a pony bottle of oxygen, but we'd use H valves on them. So I'd still carry two primary regulators on top of a single cylinder so that if I had, <clears throat> excuse me, so that if I had a regulator failure, we could recover from that without any problem and, uh, you know, try to be safe as much as possible. Yeah, so all you all you tech divers out there, we know you're out there listening to this. Um, think about that: two thirty foot hoses hung off the back of a boat, uh, connected <laughs> to actual oxygen cylinders that are hanging on the boat. 
Chuck's seen it all. So all of your <laughs> profiles here of, of different things you're doing, that's, that's an origin story, right? Of, of evolution. And what I love about that is that it's an origin story of need, right? So it allowed you to go farther or put, be more aggressive in your words, um, rather than as a, you know, some people look at tech diving as this badge of, you know, honor. It really came out of a need and a desire to, to, to be more aggressive in your diving, to have bigger dives and things like that. So I love, I love that story and I really appreciate you sharing it because it's just so interesting to me, the evolution of, of things, again, kind of the, the origin of a lot of what we could call innovation, meaning new value, comes from a deep need or a desire. And, and just to make those connections is pretty cool, Chuck. So thanks for indulging me. I, I'm always curious <laughs> about that stuff because I just – I don't know. I'm on the other end of that spectrum, right? Just kind of experiencing all that stuff now and gaining all that knowledge um, from those that have come before that uh you know i don't i don't know so it's it's amazing to hear those origin stories for you and and things like that so sorry to to go down the equipment and tech route but really wanted to understand that from uh from my from my perspective no that's a that's a i think that's a great road to go down so while while you were you know doing all these dives were you getting training or was it just kind of on the fly like just reading or were you taking training from any person or, or form of training, or was it just like, let's just go out and see what happens. <laughs> it was uh, a lot of <clears throat> reading, but at that time there was no formal training really uh, for that. I, I wasn't following a commercial diver training course where you use hard hat diving and all of that. And there really wasn't much going on as far as uh, open circuit type uh, technical diving at that point in time, it was just, you know, we were diving air and we were diving oxygen, which, you know, put us in the technical realm. But, it, you know, I was so interested and involved in that and our profiles were getting, you know, greater and greater. And, and uh, you know, we were learning about narcosis. So everybody knew about narcosis, but we were experiencing it, experiencing it firsthand and so it kind of goes back to something that I think Mike Galt had brought up with you um, in a previous podcast. And that was uh, that at this time I was working for Texas Scuba as an instructor doing these trips and being invited out as a, as a uh, dive master with the research work that was going on. And uh, so one day I'm at the dive store working and, you know, I'm a, a regulator repair guy, I'd go in on a regular basis and I was in charge of, you know, making sure everybody's stuff was fixed. And, and this trailer pulls up out front with a guy and he's pulling it behind a pickup truck. And, and the owner hollers at me, says, Chuck, you know, come look at this. And so I go out the back door and next to the tank, I meet for the very first time, our good friend, uh, Jesse and, uh, Armin Trout or Trout as we like to call him. And he was like the traveling snake oil salesman uh, who introduced literally everybody in Texas to nitrox and uh, the beginnings of technical diving for this whole area. And he had this, this trailer was incredible. He had, you know, two large cylinders like you would find in a welding shop, T cylinders or whatever, 
they're all strapped down to this flatbed trailer. But in the middle of it was this one huge cylinder. And it, it was weird because the cylinder was concave on the ends rather than having, you know, convex ends like you would typically see in a pressure vessel. We're like, what is that? He said, oh, that's the ballast tank out of an old submarine that they sell in surplus. He said, I, I bought this down in Florida when I learned how to do all this training stuff. And uh, he was he had worked with Tom Mount and Dick Rakowski, some of the guys down there, and had become a, a nitrox instructor. And so he's like, you know, I, I'm nitrox instructor and I'm living down in Victoria now. And he worked in the oil industry, real smart guy. He said, but, you know, I'm trying to spread the gospel about nitrox. And I'm like, well, what's nitrox? So he explained to me that, you know, if you just put a little more oxygen in, took some of the nitrogen out, you'd be less likely to get bent and your dives would go better and you'd feel better and all this. And I mean, I was instantly sold. I said, well, where do I sign up? How do I do this? And he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll set up a class. I'll, teach some of you guys how to do nitrox. And he said, I'm working on my instructor training right now. And so, you know, a week later I was a nitrox diver and I was, you know, in love with the whole concept of it. And literally it probably wasn't more than a month or two later. Uh, he did a course in Austin out at Travis and, uh, we all became nitrox instructors at that point in time and that was uh that was pretty early i think maybe 1992 or something like that and so yes we I took training with him and he's the one that gave me the first real on you know hands-on book training reading through materials of the science behind nitrox and and uh we learned all about the tables and all of this good stuff and uh, so that really piqued my interest, uh, while at the same time, all the agencies were just, you know, blowing up with, we can't have this nitrox, everybody's going to die. Uh, I believe it was 1993, actually, the year later, when they had the DEMA show in Houston for the first time I can recall, and they completely barred anyone from having anything about nitrox in the entire show. They were actually picking things up off of people's table and taking it and making them put it in their cars so that nitrox could not be promoted at the dive equipment show. And uh, so Jesse turned out to be uh, somebody who took me through several levels of training. uh, And, you know, I became a technical instructor with IENTD, Tom Mount's group. We dove in Florida, did a lot of wreck diving down there and, and uh, eventually, Jesse was my Trimix instructor and instructor trainer. Uh, and he was not a cave instructor, but he uh, taught me all all the things I needed to know to be a safe and uh, efficient technical diver all the way through Trimix and even gas blending. I mean, he was he was uh, really, really incredibly intelligent about that. I say was. He's still with us. So, uh he uh, he passed all that on to me and was my mentor and, uh, you know, told me tales of Sheck Exley that he had heard from all the other guys and Tom Bowden and all these these cult figures to me at that time. And so uh, I, I was just enamored with it. And that's the, the training path that I took was following Jesse down the road with his trailer 
uh, to Florida and spending just a lot of time with him there. Wow. Wow. So Out I, of a trailer. <laughs> I have, uh, That's so crazy. I, I know at one point it must have happened as, you know, you're progressing through your training. But can you recall the exact moment when you looked back and were like, oh, I jumped off of a boat and went down to 200 feet on air because they told me it's somewhere down there. Do you recall that moment? We're like, I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I was too ignorant, I'd have to say, to really have that come to Jesus moment. Uh, <laughs> until I was... Until I was diving at Good Enough Springs, probably that—that's when it, it really became obvious to me uh, how serious things really were. The—the the first time we punched a hole through the gravel dam at Good Enough Springs, and uh, you know I'm a small person. I, I you know on a good day before I started shrinking, I was five foot six and 135 pounds, and so. Good enough. I'm the one who got to explore there simply because I was the runt who could they they could shove through the hole. And uh, once they shoved <laughs> me through the hole, and I saw the gravel fill in behind me, uh, and I realized that I may never get out of there. That's that was kind of like, what have I done, and how did I get to this point? So um, that that would have been that that moment. Uh, because we progressively, you know, went further and further. I, I'm a huge proponent of progressive penetration uh, technique in diving, and penetration doesn't necessarily have to uh, be related to cave diving. Uh, I believe it's also good for open water divers. You know, you don't go out and become an open water diver, and the very first thing you do is go to 130 feet. You know, you, you learn progressively, and you do more and more things. And, uh, that's, you know, that's one of the good sides to the training, uh, progression that Patty or Nowy or SSI or these agencies put you through is, uh, they kind of tell you, oh, well, you need to do this course to, to do this, you know, level of diving. And although you really don't have to, uh, it's not a bad idea to gain that experience slowly over time and, and uh, so, you know, we've seen that at Good Enough where somebody will come out and they'll make one dive 260 feet. And then the second dive, they're trying to go to 400 because it goes that deep. And uh, I, I, it kind of bothers me to see that. And I didn't I didn't really take that path. It sounds kind of crazy, but, I, you know, like like you said earlier, I did what I did out of necessity uh, because there was no training or there was no equipment or, or whatever we, you know, we had to, to follow that course. And, uh, so, you know, the nitrox was the, the natural progression and, and taught all of that. We promoted nitrox then on the large boat, even for the recreational people and, and, uh, the dive boats embraced it. They ended up putting gas membrane systems on the boats where they, you know, blended nitrox on the boat. We, I don't know, it was probably two or three years of carrying out a portable blending station and we'd have nitrox trips where everybody on the boat was someone who was nitrox trained. And uh, even Noah started into this early when 
the coral spawning was a huge event on the flower gardens trips where once a year we'd go out and spend three or four days watching these coral spawning eruptions and they wanted to spend more time. And so, uh, they said, well, can we do this on nitrox? And I, at that time I didn't have a blending system that would work on there. So we put 40 aluminum cylinders in the back of my van. I drove to Victoria where Jesse filled them all with me over the course of a night and took them back. And so all the NOAA divers could dive nitrox on the boat during the coral spawning. And, and once the boat owner saw how great that was, we could extend the bottom times, have less incidence of, you know, decompression sickness or, or you know, uh, a greater safety margin, I should say, than he was all about it. And he's like, well, let's, let's put nitrox on the boat. And they started doing that. So that was kind of a nice evolution as well. And, uh, uh, you know, like I say, I, I lived to go offshore. And when we couldn't go offshore because of the weather, that's the real reason I got into cave diving. Uh, Armand Trout said, look, you're wasting your time hanging around waiting for a boat to go offshore. He said, I can go to Florida and do these profiles, do these big dives anytime I want because we never get weathered out unless there's a flood of the Suwannee Valley or something like that. Uh, he said, you know, you need to learn how to cave dive. And so that's really where my interest got involved in that is just trying to, to take it to another level but have a regular ability to, to get those dives in uh, rather than, you know, like I say, standing on the shore looking at three to five foot waves, realizing we couldn't take recreational divers out there because it was just too rough to go. Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, I guess that would be a uh, leading into the next question. Tell us, tell us about Florida, you know, tell us about that, that how that evolved. And, um, you know, obviously you s- talked about the origins of it, but, uh, you know, just a little bit about Florida and, and the, the times surrounding that. Sure, absolutely. Uh, like I say, uh, Armand Trout was my instructor, taught me everything, uh, up until the point of cave diving. And he said, you know, you need to be a cave diver now. So one of my offshore buddies and I uh, decided we'd go to Florida and dive. And I said, well, you know, how do I learn to do this? Who's going to teach me? And he says, well, I got this great friend. You know, he he bought out Dive Right. He's a great instructor. He does all this stuff. His name's Lamar Hires, the owner of Dive Right. Let me see if I can get him to, to train you. And so he called and Lamar's like, well, you know, I'm not doing much training anymore, you know. And Jesse's like, well, these guys, you know, they they know what they're doing. You know, they won't be any trouble. Please, 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 will you train them? And Lamar said, okay, send them down. So <laughs> I was incredibly fortunate to get to do my dive training with Lamar Hires. Uh, wow. I think that was 1995 was when he took us on. And so uh, uh, my buddy and I, would make these regular trips down there and, and we knocked it out in a fairly short period of time. It was, you know, spring of 96 when I got my full cave certification, but like everybody, we started at Jenny Springs and, and then uh, Lamar having been involved with some exploration himself uh, was able to take us to a lot of really interesting places that piqued my curiosity and, and uh, really got me excited about it. There was, there was a particular place uh, that Sheck actually wrote about in one of his books where you go in a, in a crack in one county next to a river and you go down and you swim across that and you enter across a county line underwater in the cave 
into another river and then you go across that one and you end up coming back across a third county line. It's like where three counties meet in the convergence of a river and uh, you go underneath a train track at one point and sometimes you'll hear the train going over while you're 100 feet underwater diving through this really silty, murky cave. And so uh, when Lamar took us on that dive, that was just the most incredible thing ever because I got to say, oh, I went on a cave dive. I dove through three different counties all at the same dive. And, and uh, we came up to a little crack that was just barely big enough to get out of a fairly deep dive. The line probably broke on us three times while we were in there because it was a dive that nobody ever typically made. So, you know, he'd like, you know, hold, and we'd hold and he'd tie the line back together and we'd go a little further. And, and, uh, you know, not to say he wasn't safe because these things happen and that's what you're trained for. But, uh, that was kind of almost like exploration diving to me. We didn't throw any line in the cave or any of that, but, uh, he, he took me to a level that I don't think I would have gotten to if we'd have just stayed at Jenny Springs and, dove the devil's ear or whatever the the feature is and so you know once i got that training and and trout had already gotten me to the point of being you know trimix i was a trimix instructor by that time as well or shortly thereafter uh, uh jesse started diving rebreathers for the wkpp and this was you know george irvine the, the great george he was he was half crazy, but an outstanding <laughs> uh, person to push a team forward and, and talk to the state. He was an attorney on the side. And so, no, he wasn't. He was an investment banker. I'm sorry, not an attorney, but he knew how to talk to people. So he got us access to Wakala and all that kind of stuff. But uh, being from out of state, George wasn't going to let me be on a lead team. And, and, you know, I hadn't earned my keep as a cave diver at that point in time, honestly. Uh, but, I got to a support role. So we were, you know, then we started doing 190 foot dives to set up the rebreather divers for the uh, Wakola project. And, uh, you know, at that point, so we're wearing DIR gear. You have to, to dive with WKPP. We're humping their gear and, you know, just trying to work our way up, get to get some access to some really cool dive spots, uh, Indian Springs, uh, you know, some of these really deeper, caves and and uh you know i'm finding myself now diving with an actual team that knows what they're doing i'm learning a lot from them and getting to push the limits further making dives in the 200 plus range at this point in time and and uh so that that introduced me to exploration and so we just started looking for caves everywhere uh jesse on his, on the side said you know we need a boat because there's so many spring caves in florida you don't get to to hear about so we bought a little john boat a little motor and started putzing up and down all these rivers the chipola and all these things in, in northern florida and started getting into side mount diving because you had to to get through a lot of that stuff and so that's how it kind of all came to be and once i gained all that knowledge and expertise we had always heard of uh, a good segue here for good enough springs we had always heard about there were a couple of caves in Texas that were diveable. And so it was, I think, 2000 when I was back here and, and sought out Robert Laird, whom you know, I'd met before. And he was one of the few people to ever been to Goodness Springs. And we sought his help in finding that, figuring, you know, we'd go cave diving in Texas, which was kind of a unique thing. 
And nobody at that time had any idea that it was such a deep cave. So with a lot of work and a lot of effort, we put together a little group and went down there and found it and were shocked to find that it went deeper and the flow was so incredible that uh, this needed to be formalized. We needed to bring more people in to help because it wasn't something we were just going to be able to do in a weekend or, or two. Uh, so the Florida WKPP and, you know, uh, the experience I gained with them and going on the, the big Mexico trip to Merida and all of that uh, gave me the, the confidence and the experience necessary to kind of head up a group of local guys here to start looking for exploration that didn't require a 12 hour drive to Florida and back every month. So that's where that started. Yeah. Maybe we can talk more about good enough. Um, because there, there's some amazing discoveries there. And also there's, you know, you being the lead diver, I've heard stories of that, the big push dive that you, that you made and, and would love to hear kind of the, evolution progressive to that ultimate push dive that that's kind of become legend here um, in a lot of ways but would love to kind of hear the story of how you opened up good enough what was it like building a team that could handle something like good enough and then how did you guys progress through your exploration of that project sure absolutely uh like I said, you know, that was like the year 2000. And, uh, you know, we were working out of, at that point, I had upgraded to a bigger John, but we actually bought one that was uh, big enough to carry four divers and uh, over a thousand pounds of gear. It was a 17 foot wide or 17 foot long, uh, nearly six foot wide John boat. And we decided that was big enough to, to do this Amistad Lake stuff, looking at good enough. And uh, we pretty much, when we got there, there was no mooring or anything like that. It required a pretty good search to find the place. And we got it, but we left an upline, which was nothing more than a quarter inch rope tied to a buoy and a, some sort of weight on the bottom. I think there was a concrete block or something down there, a small one. And so we decided we were going to start going back there. And on the second trip, it, we found this fire hydrant tunnel, uh, where the water comes out of the deep section there. And uh, we were just shocked and amazed. I mean, uh, we'd always thought that Jenny Springs flow was incredible. And we got there and it was so strong that it, it was nothing you could even consider swimming against. Uh, pulling against it was hard enough, but there were really not many because it's a very smooth type of surface down there. And, so uh, we just pretty much picked our way forward, fly walking on the ceiling, getting your finger in cracks and pulling. And, you know, you just get a little further and a little further every time. And, and we just kept going back and kept going back. And at the time, it was pretty arduous because uh, once you got off the highway, the, the road to the boat ramp was just a dirt road. It was a wash, you know, washboard road, really rough. Uh, there was not a, a boat ramp there that was permanent. It was uh, just a gravel slope that went down, and the, the state had run two pieces of extended steel down there, like a one piece on each side for the tracks on your car or your truck to lower the boat down in the water. And, and so uh, luckily we were young and adventurous and had some stamina left in us at that time. And 
so we just went every month for years uh, and would fight this cave and pick our way through it. And it didn't take long before we figured out that the way to make ourselves uh, gain progress through there was with the use of mountain climbing techniques. We uh, went to REI, bought a bunch of carabiners. I went in there and looked, you know, took like two of every carabiner type they had. They had these skinny ones and the thick ones and the long ones and the short ones. And, and uh, uh, saying carabiners, pitons, of course, uh, but carabiners as well. And we bought, you know, rope that was substantial and we'd tie the rope, you know, every foot you'd tie a knot in, in this rope so you could pull yourself on it. So we just started working our way forward pulling ourselves and then hammering these pitons into the cracks and good enough. And, uh, over course of a couple years, we managed to get our way, uh, right up to where the restriction was and, uh, find a crack overhead such that we could, uh, you know, hammer in a piton, get a rope tied in there. And then we used what we call John lines. John lines were something I learned in wreck diving in Florida. John lines, just like a four to six foot long, heavy line with a, an attachment each end, a carabiner, you could clip it into your harness, typically to a crotch strap or something like that, and then attach yourself to the wall of the cave. And then you just kind of like fly. You could have your hands off. You didn't have to hold on anymore. And you would just, you know, work your way around and try and get low enough in the flow. You could see what's down there and uh, maybe get to all the way to the floor and kind of dig at the gravel a little bit. And, uh, we worked on that and started developing techniques to get through this gravel dam that presented itself uh, at various depths. It was, you know, maybe 180 feet at times. It was that shallow. And when the lake would experience flow events and, and uh, rain events, uh, at times the restriction was 200, 205 feet deep. So you didn't have a lot of time to work down there and it was all decompression. Uh, but we were on mixed gas, you know, we were all mixed gas trained at that time and, and, uh, eventually got to the point where we were able to drive some stakes down into the ground in front of the restriction, uh, with this landscape timber, like you put around gardens uh, and we lashed it on there with line. So you could finally unclip your John line and get in front of the gravel restriction and, and kind of lay flat on your belly and dig. And so, we dug and dug. And so I think Mike was with me on a particular dive where he was digging and I was digging and, and we got a big enough hole in this gravel. It looked like I could maybe squeeze through there in my side mounts. And so I said, I'm going for it. And I wiggled and pushed and squeezed through and popped through on the other side. And, and that's the moment I spoke to earlier where I realized that you know, there was no guarantee that the gravel wasn't going to all fill in behind me and I'd have to dig my way out as well. So uh, my heart rate probably was about 150 beats per minute at that time, I guess, because I was working hard and, and the shock of feeling that loneliness, being all alone on the other side of this gravel dam about 200 feet underwater just really set in. And I didn't get much further on that dive. I think I... I swam forward maybe 20 feet and found a place to hammer a piton into the wall and connect the line. And then I went straight back for it. And luckily, uh, the gravel was pretty compliant and it, it moved out of my way as I pushed forward and, and got out. But I, I was pretty much terrified the entire time. And, and, um, 
managed to survive that one. And, and we got out and talked about it, decided the next day we were going to check and see if it went any further and, you know, made another penetration the next day. So we had gotten through the restriction and had come back safely at this point. And uh, I, I was quite, quite excited about it, quite excited. And uh, you, you've got all this percolating, all these, these rocks and things, as I described, that were different sizes. I was going to mention you could check out on our, our project website. There's a nice YouTube video, one of our divers, David Moore, shot where he did a penetration of the restriction this uh, flow and you'll see in that video these rocks that are the size of of lemons and limes that are just flying up in the air because of the water passing through and all that so it kind of gives you a good perspective on it but we just continued to uh to look at penetrations uh, we got beat there because the flow changed uh such that the gravel continued to fill up this pit in the in the restriction, and so there was a period of a couple of years where we didn't make any progress at all. And then, I guess it was Hurricane Claudette came through, and it was a humongous flood event uh, in some areas, but it picked the flow up at good enough so much that it's indescribable. Actually, uh, we were unable to even approach the entrance to the cave because where it comes out of the side of this cliff base. Uh, we've got this stainless steel heavy chain that you pull yourself down to. You'd get within 20 feet of the entrance of the cave and the chain would just start vibrating in your hands. And you could hear this just crumbling, crumbling, sound like Rice Krispies on steroids. And that was all the rocks churning inside the cave that you would hear audially as we approached. And so uh, we didn't make another dive in the cave after Claudette for some period of time. And the next spring when we went in there, uh, we went down, we pulled our way up to the restriction. A lot of the lines were, were broken and things like that. But when we finally got to the point where we could see the restriction, we were shocked and amazed to find that Hurricane Claudette, the flow, had blown the restriction completely clear of gravel for a period of time. Wow. And uh, that's when we decided we've got to get in there right now and do something. And uh, at, at that point in time, it was even a bad massable restriction. You threw there wearing, you know, double 104s or 108s or whatever on your back. Uh, and, and we were able to get down at that time uh, pretty deep. I think we got down to about 300 feet on a dive, uh, made a tie off there, extended our line. And that's when Mike Galt and I started planning to, to do a really good deep dive at Good Enough uh, after that had become open more. So, you know, a, a lot goes on in period of time. We're working with uh, Ray Camps and uh, Dr. Groger out of Texas State. We've got these flow instruments that they're letting us use. It's, it's really cool. It's like a portable uh, Doppler. It's got three prongs that stick out on it and measures the the flow of uh, water between these three prongs and measures the, the time it takes so you can estimate water flow. And, and Ray put out a, a research study on it where we actually were the first, or were first able to make accurate flow measurements from the cave during this period of time. 
working with them using instruments and drawing out a big grid over the entire opening of the cave, one foot square, and then taking flow measurements in every foot area so that they could combine some sort of a computer study to say how much water actually came out. So, you know, we were, we were starting to be involved in, in research and putting in hypsons and, you know, measuring water quality and all these kinds of things. But my, my heart was in the exploration. And so we just continued to, to do all of these things. Pretty good team at that time. It's amazing. I look back and I've got more than 40 people on my list who have dived to Good Enough Springs as part of the project over 20 years. So, you know, it, sometimes we get the bad rap. Well, you know, we want to dive there, but we can't because you won't let anybody. That's not true. Uh, like I say, over that period of time, more than 40 different people who were all just, you know, guys like you and me have, have joined the project and, and helped time. And it's been less active. Uh, that's something to consider. But, uh, you know, I'm, I should go on to say, Mike and I made this, this one dive where we planned it and we had a lot of support help. We had to pull bottles through the restriction to set the dive up. So we had a team do that where they would go past the restriction and hook lines and drag cylinders in. And, and so Mike and I got to do a pretty cool dive there uh, where we went down to nearly 400 feet. I think 393 was the official number. And, uh, and that wasn't my deepest dive to death at that point in time, but it was my deepest cave dive uh, at that point in my life. And we we were shocked to see that not only was the cave continuing to go on, but it was very large and just past the area where we made a tie off at 393 feet. Uh, it looked like the cave started going deeper more quickly. And uh, that wow. <laughs> left me in a, with a sense of awe that this wasn't only something that was, you know, 400 feet deep, but that it obviously went much deeper than that. And so, uh, you know, we came back successfully from that. Everybody was safe. Nobody got bent. We were, you know, working on our profiles and all of that. And that, well, we better start, uh, you know, planning something more because there were some logistical problems going any deeper than 400 feet in that cave at that point in time. And so the the planning began for our big push dive that we did in 2008, where where we actually, uh, you know, added another 115 plus feet of depth onto our previous dive. So that's that's kind of where it. It's these little discoveries along the way uh, that tell you what lies beyond, and that you better go back and and uh, do some more figuring before you go in there and just try to go for everything on one, one dive. It just doesn't work that way. So for all of our numbers listeners out there, um, what were, what was that final number for you? in in uh, I believe if not the deepest, one of the deepest cave dives ever recorded in you know, not just good enough. I'm talking in general. So what, what was the final kind of number on that push dive? Yes, the uh, the final dive we did in July of 2008, the final deep push dive that we've done at this point, uh, was a dive at that time with the lake level where it was, uh, was to 515 feet of depth. That's freshwater depth. 
so it was it was pretty deep. It was a pretty arduous dive. Uh, the profile was fairly easy to quote back. It took 30 minutes to get there, and it took six hours to get out. So surface to surface was six and a half hours. Wow. Uh, at 500, at 515 feet, the cave was still going down at about a, well, maybe a 20 degree slope. And it was a fairly large passage with nothing to tie off on, just a gravel floor. So luckily I had brought a, a four pound lead weight like you'd use on a weight belt and tied the guideline to that. We, we actually stamped our project uh, information or our name, not our name, but the GSEP onto the, the lead before we went in so that, you know, we could lay claim to it. But uh, that dive uh, is, and, and you know, it, it's not about records. We didn't go there to set a record originally, and we didn't even know it went deep when we first started diving good enough. But uh, as it turns out, there are caves in which the cave passage is has more vertical relief than good enough. Uh, Phantom Cave is one of them. Uh, but there has, to this day, uh, unless something's happened recently, uh, there has not been a dive in which the diver was deeper than 515 feet of depth in water. Uh, and the reason this has come up before is, uh, you know, some of my great friends are Florida dove uh, with Dr. Tom Iliff out in Phantom, and and they determined that since the cave opening is shallower than what Goodenough's is, that the actual vertical passage has a deeper profile. But but their dive was I think 462 feet of water, so you know 515 feet is a deeper cave dive than a 462 foot cave dive. But the cave passage itself has more vertical relief in it at Phantom. So, you know, they, they absolutely uh, deserve the credit for, for Phantom Cave being a deeper cave in depth of passage, but not for water depth. Uh, and, and some people are like, well, you know, good enough. You, you, you don't really get into the cave until you're 160 feet down or 130 feet down. But the, the argument that I would always say was, yeah, I'll tell the guys at WKPP that those 300-foot dives they were doing at Wakola were only 100 foot deep because you don't enter the cave until 190 foot underneath the surface of the water. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't really have much bearing on how difficult the dive is. You're, you're still 515 feet underwater, and every breath you take, you see the needle on your depth or your pressure gauge drop about, you know, at least 50 PSI every time you take a breath at that depth on open circuits. So um, the the pucker factor is there. The water is truly deep. And uh, it's, you know, I, I'm just, I'm proud of our team. I mean, this was not Chuck No went out and did something miraculous. This is Chuck No, you know, stood on the heels of many people before him and the team that supported him and, and just happened to be the glory boy that got to claim that he was the one that was there at that time. But uh, it was truly a team effort. And it's a record that, well, I guess this month, 14 years uh, since anybody's had a deeper cave dive in the United States. It's something we're really proud of. 
So yeah, that's a amazing story. Just want to say that firsthand. Uh, so I, I guess the, a couple of questions I have when you were talking about the first time you got through the rubble and then you just saw the, the rubble kind of collapse behind you. Uh, would you say that that was, uh, the, the most terrifying moment that you've had in a dive or were there other <laughs> ones or, um, you know, what, what was the mo was that the moment where you were, you were like, yeah, why, what have I done to lead to this moment? You know, you know, because uh, I feel like having a moment like that and uh, that that would be a tough one to keep your cool. Um, but also um, to continue to want to push is, you know, that exploration mindset. So I'm just, you know, curious, was that the 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 I don't want to say worst of the moments, but was that the you know, would that be up there with, you know, that feeling of your heart sinking? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great question, actually. And the, it comes to mind, actually, three times when I had some concern on dives uh, that was maybe more than other dives. And that one moment when I first went through the restriction and the gravel kind of filled in behind me was certainly uh, where my heart probably raced the fastest. And I, I considered the possibilities, uh, the negative possibilities on that dive. But um, I had already experienced a couple of dives earlier in my career that were kind of interesting. And, and one probably wasn't a big deal, but uh, I remember one time in a cave dive when I wasn't all that experienced where I uh, got to the end of a line somewhere and the line arrow pointed in the wrong direction. And so I was officially lost. I was unsure Oof. whether I should turn around and go back the way I came from because it had been the result of a silt. And I did not really know how to get out of the at that point in time. And so I was with a buddy with a course on this dive and we conferred on it and decided that the line arrow was probably correct and that there uh you know even though we we never thought we left a continuous line, we must have at some point we must have accidentally gotten off the line and ended up on another line and so you know as you're trained we pulled out jump reels and we tied on to the end and we just took off down this open passage and sure enough we found ourselves back on a a main line that was properly marked and all that. And that was scary to me because I was, I was lost. And, uh, from that moment on the, the sticker that I prominently displayed on my scooter that we used on dives was said lost sucks. So uh, <laughs> that was a, a learning experience for me. Uh, and then I had one other dive when I was with a uh, trout and we were diving Indian Springs. And Indian Springs is a really cool, huge, wonderful uh, dive at, in the Florida Panhandle, or actually not the Panhandle, but down a little further. It's a, it's a dive where you spend an hour going through this passage, 140, 150 feet deep, to get back to the main room. I think the, that room is called the Wakula Room, if I remember correctly, although it's not Wakula Springs. And so we're going along this one passage, and we get all the way back there, and and uh, it spits you out of this hole in the. It's probably big enough to hold a 747. You can't 
see the ceiling, you can't see the floor, you can't see the other side. And we were using tow scooters. So we had Gavin scooters and then we had a scooter hooked on the back of us and we're towing these in case we need it for egression. And, uh, and, and so we spit out of this hole and we open up into this huge room, nothing but blackness and our little HID lights. And Jesse points his scooter downward. So we're, we're, you know, 160 feet. We come out in this big room, can't see anything. He points downward and I point behind him with my scooter and we're still on the trigger. I'm following him. And I got down about 200, I think, I think somebody said the number was 208 foot. Cause I've made this story before. It's hard to remember. Uh, <laughs> but at that point, I realized my head, this, this alarm went off that, that I was towing, not a Gavin scooter, which are decorated, but I was towing one of these oceanic Mako scooters behind me. They're decorated for like 180 feet. And so I'm at 200 plus and I'm downhill following him, tilt on this scooter. And when I realized, I just instantly just shoved the nose of my scooter up, my Gavin scooter up. And, you know, I'm still on the scooter making this arc like I'm climbing up. And when my tow scooter dropped below me, the bulkhead imploded. And so what was a neutral scooter at that point in time suddenly became about 40 pounds negatively buoyant, uh, hanging off the rear crotch ring of my, of my harness. And, and I'm hovering over uh, a floor of probably 300 foot in this room. And uh, so couldn't, I didn't have enough buoyancy. I mean, I inflated my BT into, you know, the bubbles flying out of it. And the only thing that's keeping me from going to the bottom like a lead weight was this uh, Gavin that I had my trigger hand on. And so I'm just, you know, holding on to the scooter and the scooter is slowly pulling me shallower back towards the side, toward the wall where we came out at 160 foot. And the, the disheartening part about it was the whole time this is going on, Trout had turned around. It's a great buddy. Turned around, come back over to, to see to make sure I'm okay. And I hear this just crazy cackling of laughter coming out of his regulator <laughs> while he watches me struggle for my life to get back to the edge of the cave. And <laughs> I, I guess I really wasn't in any danger of dying because he was there and he could have given me some additional help. But uh, it, it was a, a moment that I will never forget uh, because it, it sounds like a shotgun goes off when scooters implode it was the second time i'd been a victim, not victim but i'd been around a, a, a mako scooter implosion it was the first time i'd ever experienced it so yes in addition to being pulled in gravel hole behind me those two moments were my moments underwater i'd say Thank you very much for sharing that. That's uh, th- that those are great. That's that's yeah. I'm I'm glad you're here to tell the tale for sure. So, <laughs> that was that was amazing. Well, good. Well, Chuck, let's uh, let's maybe wrap some things up here. Uh, man, there's like a thousand other questions I have running through my head right now that would be amazing to talk to you about. But maybe maybe just one final question from my end, which would be, you know, for me, I'm a relatively new diver. I'm on my tech training journey and learning, you know, on my cave diving journey as well. Um, and still, still learning. I'm curious. I ask this question of a lot of, 
um, people that have been there and done that and have the experience. You know, do you have any advice, um, any sage wisdom things for that you've learned that you've taken away that you would pass on to divers like me who are who are coming behind folks like you that uh, that have been there and done that? You know, any any thoughts or advice that you can w- offer to to those that are like me or or those that are of our listeners that are you know, interested in the same path that that maybe places that you've already been. Yeah. So you just, you know, I encourage everyone to, uh, do this because it's what you love. And, and if you are passionate about diving, uh, the good experiences are just going to come naturally. You're going to make friends and have experiences that, uh, will last a lifetime, whether it's hanging out with the whale sharks or, uh, the Eagle Rays or amazing cave dives or, or whatever it is that's your passion. Just do it because you love that. And uh, that that will propel you forward uh, in diving. Don't do it for the records. I didn't start diving at Good Enough Springs and didn't start the Good Enough Springs Exploration Project because I wanted to set records. I didn't even know the cave deep at that point in time. Uh, that just befell us from sheer luck that we now hold this, this dubious honor and, uh, just, you know, one of those things that comes with the territory of doing what you love. They, you know, I've always been told, you know, don't go out and get a job, uh, do what you like and the job will follow. And the same holds true for accomplishments in diving. I have taken a little bit of break from teaching, but that was one thing I would always try to tell my students is don't get so class heavy, you know, where you forget the love of scuba. Cause for me, it's, you know, that 30 foot reef where the sun is shining, the fish are swimming and I'm just a part of it, you know, and that, that's my happy place. And, (laughs) um, and, and everyone has their different happy place, but I just, I think that's such an amazing like out, you know, outlook on everything just because, um, I, I think that's, you know, just the, the love for it is what brought me to it. And then just kind of like, Oh yeah, you know, I do enjoy taking classes here and there and progressing myself. But at the end of the day, just give me that 30 foot reef and I'm, I'm, you know, happier than a pig in mud. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I still, to this day, I mean, one of the most enjoyable things there ever was to do to strap on what now I consider minimalist gear when being an aluminum 80 on my back and a single regulator and falling off a boat in Cozumel and drifting along a beautiful wall and enjoying the, the clear warm water and seeing all the beautiful, you know, sights there are to see on something like that. I haven't lost my appreciation for that just because I've, you know, accomplished some more technical portions of diving throughout my career. You're in Nick's happy place now. <laughs> nice little drift dive along a, along a, a shallow reef. Well, Chuck, I hope we can invite you back at some point. Um, you know, we would love to. Like I said, we have a thousand more questions to ask you, and we would just love to have you back and and have more conversations as we go forward and follow your journey. But thank you so much for for coming on the show and and being a part of today, sharing your stories and wisdom and all the details of things uh, I learned a ton. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to get to relive some of the 
the fun stuff and uh, spread the word about Good Springs. And and I've enjoyed listening to some of your podcasts as well. I, since I learned about it when Mike first joined on your uh, your broadcast and have listened to several episodes. So I think you guys are doing a great job and a great service for diving. So thanks to you as well. Keep up. Thanks. That means a lot. <laughs> wow. I'm floored now. You just made my day. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much. That is, that is, thank you, you know, beyond thank you. And, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it out there. We, uh, we need to get another episode 100% and then even another episode, uh, where it's, it's you and Mike. And, uh, if we can, you know, bring, um, Armand Trout, uh, I, I feel like I've, every time I've heard him, uh, Mike call him, he calls him Trout maybe, or maybe that's just what was written on his tank. I don't know. Uh, but, I would love to get you guys on here and, and be a fly on the wall and, and just uh, soak up the, the knowledge and the stories and, and just the uh, amazing times you guys have had together. So we're, we're going to, we're going to push for that here in the future. You and Mike got to get uh, uh, Armin Trout here on the show for us. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we can do that. He's a, he's a pretty interesting fellow and uh, full of knowledge and, and has even a, a greater historical perspective than I do. Uh, you know, talk about TDI numbers. I think he's instructor number like three or wow. something like that. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, <laughs> he was awesome. back in the day, you know, everybody brags about their instructor number. So, uh, you can edit this out, but I think my TDI number is 66. I'm number 66 in the instructor database. Oh. So, uh, that gives you a perspective of how old I am right there. Well, I am uh, definitely 100% going to get Daniel on setting a date uh, to have you back on again, as well as if we can get a date for the three of you uh, back on here, because that that would be some uh, that would be some good stuff. Well, there's plenty plenty more to talk about if if I have an opportunity to talk to you guys again. Uh, didn't get to mention the Civil War wreck off the Galveston coast that. Noah has done some research on and I'm, you know, real familiar with that and some historical things like that, that, that we could talk about and uh, love to sit down with, with Mike and, and Trout and, and kind of go over some old times as well. That would be a lot of fun. I'm sure we can make that work. Hey, out there in the Skewiverse, if you enjoyed this episode and want to be a part of this growing community, you can connect with us at www.thedivetable.com. And if you want to learn more about Chuck and what Chuck's been up to, and especially with Good Enough Springs, you can go to goodenoughsprings, that's springsplural.org, and read all about it. And if you're interested in getting involved, we really encourage you to reach out to Mike, reach out, reach out to Chuck, send them a message, uh, let them know, you know, your experience, what you're interested in, and uh, know that they're looking for for divers and and to continue that project. So that's goodenoughsprings.org. Um, go and check that out. So yeah, uh, and then on our end, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you are so gracious to leave a review, we'd appreciate that on Apple Podcasts. That seems to help us the most. Um, and hopefully you enjoyed the episode or follow along the story uh, for Chuck and for Mike and, and everybody else. Nick, any parting thoughts from, from you? 
Uh, no, just, you know, thank you. Well, obviously, yes. Uh, <laughs> no thank thoughts, you once but. again, Chuck, for coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no thoughts, but um, me just getting ahead of myself sometimes. Thank you once again, Chuck, for coming on to the show. I'm very much looking forward to the uh, next time. Uh, we'll have Daniel reach out and, you know, once we can set a date, because uh, I, I would love to hear more about the Rex and the, and the Gulf. And, uh, congratulations, Mike, on your new position at the Good Enough Springs Project, and looking forward to hearing more on that. Chuck, any um, any closing thoughts for you? No, nothing really. I once again just thank you guys, and uh, I'll be sure to uh, let the rest of this program uh, upload so that Daniel will have something to play with this evening or whenever he gets time to mess with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we made a lot of work for Daniel. It's great. <laughs> We revel in that. So <laughs> the more work we can make for Daniel, uh, the better on our, our end. That's so. why I actually wanted to be on the podcast. I was like, I can get this guy to just work all the time. Let's yeah, it's a it. lot of fun. Yeah, you, you, we, we sign off and then we, we know the pain's coming. So it's, uh, it's <laughs> all right. Thank you, Daniel, for all your hard work. Thank you, Daniel. We love you. Yes, We're just thank kidding. you, Daniel. I'll give you that too. All right, well. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you back on the next episode of The Dive Table. The Dive Table is a production of Fish Dive Surf Incorporated and a member of the Fish Dive Surf Podcast Network. You can find out more at www.fishdivesurf.com.